You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of October, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Donald Trump's strongest criticism of Saudi Arabia so far. Somebody really messed up and they had the worst cover-up ever. And where it should have stopped is at the deal standpoint, when they thought about it. Because whoever thought of that idea, I think is in big trouble. And they should be in big trouble, okay? My guests Stephen Diel and Carlo Benura will be discussing the situation in which Saudi Arabia finds itself after the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi and the day's other top stories, including the first known overseas cyber operation to protect American elections from Russian interference and why it may or may not be a good idea to send former leaders abroad to represent their countries. All that, plus, as France is getting ready to ban electric scooters from sidewalks, we'll ask what else still needs banning? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Stephen Diel, writer, broadcaster, and Russia analyst, and Carlo Benura, senior teaching fellow in Southeast Asian politics at SOAS. Welcome both to the program. Gentlemen, we begin with a story that has more twists every day. We simply can't turn away from this. A day after Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul was premeditated and savage, U.S. President Donald Trump has called the murder the worst cover-up in history, as we heard there off the top. A bad deal, even, he called it. Uh, Carlo, perhaps we'll start with you. Trump has strengthened his tone considerably after it seemed he was uh, playing for time and trying to avoid angering the Saudis. How much of this is about pressure on the White House to do something, if anything? That's an interesting point. Uh, I'm not sure that the White House is experiencing any uh, pressure on on this point in terms of uh, if they do, if, if Trump kept along, kept on the path that he was on, I I know this is going to sound crass, but there's very little that the administration had to lose mm. on this issue. And I, we, um, I think that what's fascinating to me is that this is getting so much pre- uh, coverage, and yet the war in Yemen is completely not part of this discussion right. uh, at all. And so in that regard, what, what fascinates me actually about this is that we got to see something which was rather unique in the Trump presidency so far, and that is a seamless reversal. You know, there was no point at which he had, he, he he's walked back on things before, yep. but he's always walked back in a kind of qualified way. Whereas now they didn't get the evidence that they wanted publicly in terms of the video or the audio that uh, Erdogan didn't mention anything about that in a speech in parliament. Uh, and yet uh, Trump seems perfectly satisfied hmm. with the, with the um, story that's come out of uh, out of Turkey. And uh, to me, that's actually kind of interesting. Like either he was getting, uh, and by this, I mean, uh, either he was getting good advice as to how to be diplomatic about the reversal, uh, or simply we've seen Trump, I mean, something, uh, in this controversy has brought out a more nuanced Trump than we mm. have seen. Of course, it, it doesn't help things. It doesn't help uh, referring to murder as a deal, plotting to murder <laughs> someone as a deal. So perhaps it hasn't cured him of all of his uh, idiosyncrasies. Stephen, he's using language like somebody messed up, whoever thought of this, bad deal. He's not 
pointing at the crown prince directly. He's not pinning blame here. He's still being a little bit careful, isn't he? He, he is being careful. And I mean, uh, as so often, I mean, incredibly childish in his language too. You know, he's, they should be in big trouble and they're going to be in big trouble. It's the sort of thing that, a, you know, a parent might say to a child. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it, it is very odd that, um, you know, well, he's very odd in many things that he does, of course, as we know. Um, but... All you know, all the fingers are pointing to the crown prince mm. um, everywhere else. Uh, and I, but I, what I find so fascinating about the whole situation is that if this were a novel or a film script, it wouldn't work. They'd throw right. it out because they'd say, "Well, look at the three main characters. You know, you've got you've got Trump. You know, who's 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 wacky anyway. Uh, and then you've got Erdogan in in Turkey. Yeah. You know, playing the good guy. When how many of how many journalists, Turkish journalists, are sitting in his jails? Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, and then you've got Saudi Arabia, which everyone has to try and be friendly with, but everyone knows is, you know, not a bastion of democracy. And, you know, the, the if what we're hearing about this, that, you know, that, that this hit squad of 15 guys went mm. in, one of whom was carrying a bone saw, you know, this is clearly, it appears, a premeditated act. You know, it's it's ghastly. Mm. Um, so, you know, a country that can do this in another country where they don't respect journalists um, and uh, then the, the other guy stepping in is from a country... and. Let's let's not forget what Trump has said about journalists. Right. You know, what worries me in all this, and as a someone who's a former journalist, and, a, and I still feel a journalist at heart in many ways, um, you know, it's it's a worrying time to be a journalist because in America too, some mm. of the things that Trump has said about journalists and journalism, um, you know, one day at one of his rallies, some of his nutty nutty supporters are going to go go mad and attack a journalist, mm. um, and who knows what might happen then. As I know it's going off rather a tangent, but it's just this this it, it it is an extraordinary scenario. And as Carlo said, actually, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, yes, there's there's real problems for the House of Saud here, but their their real issue surely is is Yemen. You know, this is this is one tragic though it is. Yeah. This is one man who's been killed, and there are thousands dying in Yemen. Yeah. I want to come back to Yemen. You've both mentioned it, uh, but but I just want to dig in a little bit more on the comments uh, of Trump, of, of Erdogan, and of the Crown Prince himself. Uh, have has anything concrete actually been announced here, though, Carlo? He's he's uh, Trump and the White House have singled out uh, these so-called operatives uh, to put them on a blacklist. Does that then matter at all? That's not punishing Saudi Arabia. It's not punishing Saudi Arabia. I I don't know exactly how much detail the administration would be able to produce in terms of some type of sanctions. It's clear that the um, Saudi government is, that um, Trump is not in either position or doesn't want to punish the Saudi government directly. And actually, to be honest, I don't know, given that uh, both uh, Erdogan and Trump himself have have not uh, named names, uh, it seems like there's a, there these two leaders are having their cake and eating it too. They want to relish in this kind of geopolitical drama, uh, which puts pressure on uh, the Saudi government to some extent, particularly uh, given the um, the pressure that uh, was exerted related to the economic summit that in Riyadh right. uh, that took place. Um, but at the same time, there's no real, uh, there's no real, Turkey is always constrained insofar as how much pressure can put on Saudi Arabia, yeah. given regional politics. And then the Trump administration, I think, wants to demonstrate that it's concerned, but actually not going to do anything. But if the U.S. is sanctioning uh, uh, individuals, named individuals, they're not naming them publicly, but right. if they, they obviously they will know who they are. Um, this 
wearing my Russian hat. I mean, you know, this is very similar to what's happening with uh, with the West dealing with Russia. Right. Um, in many ways, the most effective sanctions against Russia are aimed at individuals, individuals who've mm. made their millions one way or another in yeah. Russia, have got them out of the country and want to come to the West and, and spend them and live here. And they're being told they can't. Um, it reminded me, if I can throw in a, a little bit of humour into a, not a very funny situation, but many years ago on British television, there was a, a programme called Not the Nine O'Clock News, mm. which parodied the news. Um, and at the time of the uh, when the Saudis had beheaded a princess for adultery, um, not the nine o'clock news parried this, and they said, um, "Of course, we uh, you know we're we're not going to um, criticise Saudi Arabia because if if they did, then rich Arabs wouldn't be able to come over here and gamble and screw and get pissed." Mm. Um, and it just struck me that you know it, this actually may be the most effective way of doing it, mm. um, bearing in mind that it's you know it is an we hope a one-off incident, yeah. um, but if you actually Pinpoint the individuals who, who you know, if, they, if there's a way of saying who they are and they're responsible, then you say to them, you are not, you know, you're not allowed to come to our country. Maybe even your assets are going to be freeze, yeah. uh, frozen. And so, you know, that is, that's a way of hitting at influential people. And that does have an effect back home. Well, this is uh, the White House warning they could apply human rights sanctions, I guess, as well under the Magnitsky Act, I think, which is what uh, you're talking about there. That would be some sort of um, escalation. But I, but I wonder about really punishing Saudi Arabia and Riyadh. Is there a way to do that? We've, we've talked about the war in Yemen, but that, that seems like a, an avenue we're not going to go down with the language we've talked about from both Trump and Mr. Erdogan. Right. Uh, Trump has no interest, and in the administration more broadly probably has no interest uh, in terms of security advisors like Bolton. I don't know his position on the war in Yemen, but they see that war as thoroughly serving U.S. interests in terms of trying to keep Iran mm. in check. Uh, what, what, find, what I find uh, interesting, um, just uh, following on from what was just said, is that there is, a, is an interesting parallel between the Russian poisoning cases here in the U.K. and mm. this as well. You know, you have a, a murder that takes place by foreign agents. Uh, in under circumstances which are still slightly murky, uh, and then uh, a, a huge um, uh, number of claims made by the home governments about precisely who was involved. Would there be sanctions? Won't there be sanctions? What can the West do? And I don't know um, if there's something about these cases which are especially geopolitically um, salient uh, in terms of why governments, what, why a lot of has been um, made of these uh, these. Uh, matters. Possibly this is a question of how can states really possibly defend their sovereignty? Right. Uh, and you have spies and foreign agents working on soil. And so I think, uh, yeah, there's no no chance of them being published, but uh, punished. And at the same time, I think that what happened in the UK case will probably happen in the Turkish case as well. Mm. Trump has talked about the, the big trade deal of arms uh, with Saudi Arabia. Britain has a similar uh, deal. Canada sells arms. Many countries uh, do, uh, which go to that war in Yemen, which we, we've talked about many times before. Uh, obviously, this is an extraordinary story that needs uh, a lot of attention paid to it. When we're talking about the death of a journalist, but Stephen, we really haven't been talking about Yemen at all, have we? No, that's um, uh, and that that of course is something that Trump, um, Britain, Canada, the, the countries that are selling the arms to Saudi Arabia um, really don't want to talk about. They they deliberately push it into the background because um, they see Saudi Arabia as a bulwark against Iran in the Middle East. Um, they don't want uh, Iran taking some control over Yemen. Um, it seems that the Saudis are the only ones who can step in and do something with Western weaponry. Um, there was a, a, a very good interview I heard earlier today from uh, Michael Heseltine, Lord Heseltine, former British defence minister mm -hmm. and, and probably one of the last towering figures in British politics in the last, certainly in, in my lifetime. Um, 
And he made a very salient point. He said, you know, that uh, you've got to be pragmatic. And, um, you know, we're not going to just stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, we want them to keep doing, keep keeping the, the stability as much as possible in the Middle East. We, we see Iran as a far greater threat in the long term. Um, so he was saying, you know, yes, this is a terrible incident and, and so on. And, and, you know, what's going on in Yemen, really, there have to be talks about it. It has to be at least, you know, behind the scenes, people have got to be doing something about it. But... Um, it's all very well sort of to get on a moral high horse and say, yeah. oh, well, we're not going to sell them arms. So, but then what happens? You have right. to think through the consequences. Uh, and, a, you know, a, a sort of Iranian-type revolution in Yemen is perhaps opens another whole, uh, whole nightmare for the whole region. Fantastic analysis, gentlemen, both. I think we could stay here for a while, but I want to move uh, on now to uh, the first ever U.S. overseas cyber operation to protect American elections. The New York Times reports that the United States Cyber Command has begun targeting individual Russian operatives to try and deter them from interfering in elections, telling them uh, that they have been identified. In some cases, I think this involves direct messages. On Friday, the U.S. Justice Department outlined a campaign of information warfare by Russians aimed at influencing the upcoming midterm elections, which are uh, just about a week away, right? American defense officials refusing to give details, however, about the how exactly this operation works. Stephen, perhaps we'll start with you here. How much do we know about what? how far Russia is willing to go when it comes to cyber warfare and interference in, election, interference in elections? As far as you can imagine. Um, Ru Russia, we, we already know that particularly since 2014, this, this is really uh, 2014 and the seizure of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, eastern Ukraine by Russia, uh, was a turning point for relations between Russia and the West. And since then, Russia has ratcheted the things up so much. And we know that they interfered in uh, the, the US election, presidential elections. They know that we know they interfered in the Brexit referendum, in the Catalonia referendum in Spain. Um, Russia, Russia is is it has almost um, fallen over itself now to to do as much as it can. And it's, it's not, but this is not just a few crazy individuals. This is government sponsored. This is Kremlin sponsored from the top. Um, you know there are there are troll factories. We know that we've they've even been identified. Um, so as far as Russia is concerned, Russia actually declares itself as being at war with the West. Now this is a you know not a comfortable thing to hear, but that's their language. That's what they mm. say. And they say that anything now can be used as a weapon, including information. They even have, the, and this was admitted by the defense minister last year in February 2017, um, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, said we have information troops, hmm. troops, part of the armed forces, whose job is to carry out information warfare. So they're actually, if you read their statements, they're quite open about it. They are, they are doing this and nothing is beyond, beyond the pale for them. Hmm. Um, they, you know, certainly in terms of, of um, you know, carrying out Twitter campaigns, for example, or something, putting stuff on Facebook to try and influence the way people vote. Um, but what the fear is, is that kind of the next stage, what they have might have in their back pocket, as it were, is some major cyber attack, which could be done nowadays, you know, so that, uh, you, you know, you, you block the whole electricity grid of a, mm. of a major country, something of that nature. Um, and that's what the Americans are now saying, don't you dare try this. Um, because, of course, the real danger then, if you're looking at it from the Russian point of view, where this is war, this is warfare, uh, warfare throughout the ages has, has always gone through various stages. Mm. Uh, and if you do something serious like that, then the other side is going to respond with also ratcheting things up, making it more serious. 
you know, how long till you get into a, a hot war, actual fighting war. So this is, this is serious, and, what the, and the Americans are showing that they are taking it very seriously. So, Carlo, if we flip the tables then there a little bit, we've talked about the effectiveness of sanctions. But if we go beyond that, how, uh, how far is the U.S. willing to fight back then now? I think within this administration, there's probably a, a lot of willingness to demonstrate that the U.S. is taking things very seriously. I am slightly skeptical of uh, a number of different things. One is that uh, it's not very clear exactly what has been announced uh, today. Right. Uh, and if we read between the lines, effectively what this is saying, what the reports are saying, is that someone in the Defense Department is emailing potential. Uh, Russian hackers and and telling them that they're in trouble. And so, uh, I mean, I, I think that I, I think it's important for states to defend uh, again, to, to go back to the, the last conversation, it's important for states to, to defend themselves, to take their sovereignty seriously. Uh, this issue, though, has a lot of other baggage uh, attached to it on the U.S. side. I think what's set, what has just been said in terms of Russia is is very interesting. But on the U.S. side, there's a lot of baggage around this. In the backdrop is the whole collusion investigation. Uh, in the backdrop is also the Justice Department demonstrating that they can actually produce real results with re with regard to these investigations that do that are seemingly not politicized, uh, going after uh, naming the first suspect in uh, in the election uh, interference case. Uh, and um, also looming is um, the expansion of this type of rhetoric vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Mm. Uh, this type of activity has happened before in the recent past. So in 1996, in the election that uh, where Al Gore lost, there was this um, case in which a Chinese national or a, an American citizen who was working for the Chinese government was uh, convicted of um, laundering $55,000 through a Chinese temple in uh, California. You know, so we have recent examples of foreign governments going after American elections. And I think that the real issue is, um, is are, are these much bigger cyber attacks that actually take place on a far more regular basis right. in terms of corporations being hit, um, uh, you know, if you think about the cyber attack on Singapore's National Health Service, uh, and then uh, certainly in terms of uh, election or elect electricity grids and much bigger targets than that, or or airport um, air traffic control systems, these type of things. I think that's what the what should really be taking center stage in this conversation. What's the capacity of the U.S. government to actually pr protect against that type of attack? And I, I think part of this move here is a little bit of bluster on the Defense Department's uh, part that they really do have the infrastructure in place to actually do something about it. Right. And this is almost, a, you mentioned China there, almost a, a fight on two fronts there because China has a lot of power to, to be very influential in a cyber warfare capacity as well, do they not? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, uh, within the Defense Department, I think people are far more worried about China than they are about Russia in terms of cyber uh, security. But um, it's very hard to figure out on a day-to-day -day basis, not being uh, in the in the beltway, so to speak. It's hard to figure out exactly what what is the extent of the threat from both these countries and how much of uh, this um, posturing against these countries on this particular issue is about nationalist bluster mm. coming out of the U.S. I want to get to other topics of the day, but Stephen, I would perhaps be remiss to not ask you about uh, John Bolton's visit to Moscow and the interesting timing of that this week and in, in, in the relationship between Moscow and Washington. Well, yes, because, of course, that that um, comes in with the uh, America saying they're pulling out of the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, 
which interestingly, I thought today, um, Jan Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, said, well, actually, I'm backing America on this one because the Russians have been violating it. And how can you have a treaty where only one side is, uh, uh, is, is playing ball? Um, it's, it's interesting the way it's become so public because surely the Americans have been talking to the Russians about this behind the scenes. Um, yes, the Russians have produced this new missile, which does appear to violate the, tr the treaty. Um, the trouble is it's a headline grabber when they come out and say, right, that's it, we're pulling out of the treaty. And because it's Trump as well, you know, you kind of slap your forehead and go, oh, no, you know, what's he up to now? Um, but, uh, yeah, the, I mean, this, this is a serious issue. And, of course, John Bolton is someone who... Um, uh, is not a big softy, shall we say. I mean, uh, um, which in a way is good for the Russians to deal with. The Russians actually like to deal with strong strong guys. They're, they're, you know, if, if someone stands up to them, that's when they'll actually they'll be prepared to talk. If someone just says, oh, okay, well, you know, and, and that was perhaps Obama's problem with Russia was that he was too weak. He, he, there were some very good photos where he's kind of looking down at Putin, because he's much taller than Putin, looking down at Putin in a stern way. But he needed to do more than that to make mm -hmm. the Russians take him more seriously. Um, so uh, Bolton might be a good person to be dealing with the Russians, but um, that, that is another element. The whole, um, obviously, the nuclear question is... Uh, is it's, it's not something we've got time for now, I know, but it's, that, that's yeah. another huge aspect of the American-Russian relationship. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Stephen Diel, and Carlo Bonero. Coming up next, do former leaders make for good diplomats? How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the News, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are listening to Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. Still with me, Stephen Diel and Carlo Benura. It's been revealed that the new Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has decided to send his predecessor, Malcolm Turnbull, to an international summit in Bali. Turnbull, who's now an ordinary citizen, will represent Australia at the Our Ocean Conference. This announcement has been faced with critical reactions. He'll be there on behalf of taxpayers uh, and be accompanied by staff from the Department of Foreign Affairs. Affairs. Uh, Carlo, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, are you seeing an issue here in, in, in sending uh, the former prime minister? Well, if it's just a matter of uh, private citizens going off and representing countries uh, on the taxpayer dime, then absolutely uh, there's an issue here. But I think what's going on, which hasn't really appeared in much of the coverage, is that there is a tendency for previous prime ministers in Australian politics to actually be involved in the removal of their of the people who come after them. Right. And I wonder if uh, there's not a kind of subtle... Um, that Turnbull is actually being kept close to the center of power in order to prevent him from moving against it. Uh, since it's just been, uh, I think it's been, uh, it was August when he mm. uh, was kicked out. So in that regard, politically, it may be a very savvy move. Um, there was this whole issue about uh, Turnbull not properly um, uh, campaigning for a member of the Liberal Party or a Liberal MP. And so it may have backfired. Uh, but I think that 
yeah, giving somebody a free, uh, basically a, a infinitely expandable airline ticket mm. uh, when they're not actually a member of the cabinet is, uh, I think that's uh, pro- problematic, yeah. Do we think this uh, has anything to do with the, the recent contra- uh, controversy over the Australian embassy uh, moving from Tel Aviv to Jer- Jerusalem? Those comments, is there, does that play into this? Does, uh, does uh, perhaps Morrison want to stay out of the light? I would. I. I wouldn't think so. I mean, yeah. I. 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 I think Carlos hit the nail on the head. Mm. Actually, I think. Um, you know, it, uh, as you were speaking, I was thinking. Ah, yes. Keep your enemies close, and or your <laughs> friends close, and your enemies close still. Um, because yeah, he has Turnbull has come in for criticism mm. um, for not supporting this candidate, and and it does. You know, it's a way. It makes it rather difficult for him then to come back and start criticizing the, the prime minister and the government because actually, you know, he's been put in a. a it's a prestigious. Post. I mean, it's not a post. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a one-off trip. But I mean, it's um, it, it's yeah, it's keeping him in the limelight. It's it's perhaps soothing his ego. Um, so uh, it's 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 interesting. But I was thinking of a few others who I wouldn't want to do yeah. it with. I mean, if we can move on to <laughs> yeah, sure. Others, I mean, I was, you know, one one that you know, I think will never be put in that position from this country, from Britain, uh, is David Cameron. Right. Uh, you know, who made probably the worst political mistake of living and probably even longer than living memory of you know what do you you, oh i'm going to call a referendum on whether we stay in the eu and it's a really complicated issue but i'm just going to throw it out to the population who don't know a great deal about it and i'm just going to say yes or no because actually that's my way of dealing with my own party and my euro skeptics within the party so people are going to vote yes and i can turn around to the the conservative uh, members who say you know who don't want to be in and say well there you are now make a choice stay in the party or go yeah Uh, i mean it was such a gamble such a i mean crazy so you know cameron should never be allowed anywhere near anything to do with diplomacy <laughs> or politics or anything else ever again yeah. carlo has tony blair done any better then uh, i think tony blair is the exact opposite yeah. i mean he sees himself as the world's uh politician or the world's emissary and uh whether it's the middle east or other um issues yeah. yeah 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 he just believes that he can he has the capacity somehow to uh, to solve these issues, and he's incredibly self-confident about it. Uh, but it shows that um, you know these former leaders do not necessarily make uh, yeah. good diplomats. I think the idea is an interesting one, and uh, the the expectation would be that these leaders have, w- whether this is from the uh, expectation from the corporate world or from publics, that these leaders have extensive international networks and extensive experience dealing at the international level, and therefore they should. Uh, work very well as representatives, but there's a reason why they are no longer leaders, you know, and they have, <laughs> they have used their, you know, they're, they're past their use-by dates yeah. to some degree. And um, at, at that point, once you're talking about, and we have this problem uh, in the United States with ambassadorships, you know, any type of representative position like this always has either an element of uh, I'm not certainly not corruption, but you know it's a highly personalized process of picking these people, mm. and you're really depending on people's networks and their ability to network as opposed to real substantive uh, capabilities. Mm. But sure, surely the difference in the U.S. is that you know if you've let's take Obama for example, you know who's who still is regarded very highly by a lot of people as a decent human being mm. apart from anything else. Um, you know, but the only reason he's not in power is because the U.S. Constitution doesn't allow you to go, to be there for more than two terms. So, whereas you know, okay, Cameron stepped down, but otherwise he would have been voted out. Um, and you know, a prime minister in this country, anyway, is is, is voted out, or his party, he or his or her party, are voted out. Whereas you know, a president can still be quite young and energetic and have lots of good ideas. Um, you know, I 
and I'm looking at it from a British point of view, and someone who respects Obama, I think, you know, wow, you know, Obama could do a fantastic job for the for America around yeah. the world. Um, a lot of people I know criticize his foreign policy when he was president, but he, you know, he just comes across as as such a good advertisement for the United States, yeah. rather better than his successor. Yeah, I think the best example from from the United States, whether or not you agree with this politics, is really Jimmy Carter, who has yeah. retreated from the public eye and has taken up these two positions, one with the group known as the Elders, uh, which do a lot of work in terms of um, uh, crises uh, globally, but also uh, in terms of habitat for the huma- for humanity. Uh, you've, you saw a little bit of this in, um, I mean, yeah, I think he's unrivaled in terms of previous presidencies, or presidents, rather. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of someone that has a, uh, a good image on the international uh, stage, we can move to uh, Emmanuel Macron's France, the government planning there to implement a ban on electric scooters on the sidewalk. My personal pet peeve in France. I've been campaigning this for this for a long time, and clearly it's <laughs> gone through from my time living in France about five years ago. Uh, on top of that, uh, last year alone, more than 100,000 electric scooters were sold in the country. 100,000 electric scooters. Uh, I saw this originally as a way that uh, moms could occupy, moms and dads could occupy their kids on the way to school to keep them on track. But now they've apparently become a nuisance. Let's just ask quickly, gentlemen, uh, we know what I would ban. What would you ban in public in a big city? Oh, I don't really want to say this, but electric uh, skateboards... They, they're they're silent, completely silent. People mm. ride them on the street. They go very fast, and, uh, and not even on pa- on pavements or sidewalks. I think yeah. on the street they should be banned. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, with the headphones on and not proper lights, <laughs> and they're they're often now in the bike lanes as well, and yeah, that yeah. creates a bigger problem for some some of us cyclists here. Uh, Stephen, how about yourself? Well, I know that you two are both cyclists, whereas I tend to get around <laughs> London on the tube. So mm. I'm going to go for something on the tube. In fact, two things on the tube, the underground. Um, one, it's a shame we don't have a lady in the studio. We could have debated this, but I really hate seeing women putting their makeup on on the tube. I don't get my shaver out and <laughs> yeah. shave on the tube. You know, do yeah. that in your bathroom before you leave home, please. Uh, and then the other one is having your music far too loud. Yeah. I once had this guy, it was so loud. I, I was reading a book. I turned to him and I asked him nicely, politely, you know, excuse me, would you mind turning it down? No, he said. So I started reading my book aloud to him. He got up. He was the one. I did. He was the one. He got up and walked off, but stood close enough so he could still, you know, give me if looks could kill, you yeah. would not be getting off this tube look. That does bring us to the end of today's Midori House. Thank you so much to Stephen Dale and Carlo Benura. The show produced today by Marcus Hippie. Research by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our studio manager, Christy Evans.